Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We're here to talk tonight about this bad weekend. I'll pose it so you can get that shot. There, that one. There you go. There you go. Uh, and, and I love this book because I feel like it's a little uh, self-referential. Like we're, we're, we're talking about a, a big Comic-Con uh, story. And, and I can't help but wonder, like, has this been inside you? Or did, were you nervous about going into this territory a little bit? It was, it was kind of something that... Uh, I started hearing stories as a little kid about like old time cartoonists from the fifties and like their like the you know I think when I was when I was a little kid, Wally Wood, who was one of the greatest like cartoonists of the Mad Magazine era and like the forties and fifties, uh, killed himself. And that was like one of those times where like someone really famous in comics like blew their head off, basically. And it was like the first time I was old enough to really look into something like that. And then you'd start finding, like, oh, the guy who created Plastic Man, like, killed himself too. And, oh, the guys who created Superman, man, like, one of them died basically penniless. And, you know, so I just from the time I was a little kid, I was always fascinated by how all these people, like, even knowing all that, I still wanted to, like, work in comics, you know? Well, it seems like an industry that can kind of destroy you because... You can reinvent a property, and it can become yeah. tremendously successful, but you don't own that property. I mean, with oh, yeah. Winter yeah. Soldier, you bring back Bucky Barnes in a way that really not only reshapes the Marvel world, but then the Marvel Universe, cinematic universe, is beholden to this creation that you made. But you don't have ownership over that character like you would have of your own book. Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, luckily, they give me billions of dollars. That, <laughs> so... Um, yeah, no, I mean, some of it definitely comes from my own sort of, you know, I, I talk about how I have like a little little Jack Kirby ulcer every time right. I see the Winter Soldier. Like some, like most of me is happy about it, but sure. then there's this other part of me that's like, I should be rich because of that. Of course, <laughs> no, it's true, but you created you know, this character. You, you, but it's screaming in like a Jack Kirby voice. Like, <laughs> I should be rich because of that. <laughs> well, what I love about this book is, you know, Comic-Con can kind of be this, this is your life kind yeah. of place, right? Yeah, it's, oh, totally. It's the I past. I had that weekend. Yeah, like, well, what was I your... ran into like all my, well, it's weird. Like it made me realize like I got to look in the mirror more often because every one of my generation is starting to look much older. <laughs> 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 and all the kids coming up are all middle-aged now. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, the, you, you can really see where you've been. And, and I always think this idea of never meet your heroes too, right? Because now yeah. as you get more successful, I'm sure that you get access. And, and now, I mean, as you, as you were yeah. coming up, you're, you're meeting these people. Does that play into this story at all too? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, when I was probably in my mid-20s, one of my best friends was this guy, Al Columbia, who legendarily was going to take over big numbers when Bill Sienkiewicz quit, which big numbers was the thing Alan Moore was doing that never got finished. Right. And Al was supposed to take it over, and then he supposedly drew an issue and then tore it up uh, because he didn't like his deal or something, and then just sort of bugged out. And he showed up in Seattle and was living with like my friend who worked at Fantagraphics, and we just became friends. And he would tell me 
about uh, when he was Bill Sienkiewicz's assistant, they shared studio space with Stan Drake, who was actually the guy who was in the passenger seat when Alex Raymond killed himself, like oh, driving wow. off the road. And Stan Drake was like, the probably Alex Raymond like wished he could draw as well as Stan Drake. He used to go over and ask him like how he managed to get these facial expressions on characters and stuff. And obviously Stan Drake grew up worshiping Alex Raymond. So I just always thought about that dichotomy, but like he saw Stan at the end of his life where he was basically tracing pictures of Blondie because that was the, like the only job he could get at the end of his wow. life. And he had like, health problems because of this car accident. He had an alcohol problem. He had a gambling problem. He had like ex-wives that he was paying alimony to. So he was forced to spend like the last 20 years of his life just basically drawing like cutouts of Blondie. And he, and and like Al would find him like crying on the floor in his office. And he said, he'd just fill up pages of his sketchbook writing, like don't end up like Stan. Jesus. And that always stayed in my head. And I think the more that I saw like my own, like my, the people who I idolized or people who mentored me sort of growing older over the last like 20 years and a lot of them in public and a lot of them like growing old, like some of them growing older in a way that it's like, oh, you were kind of an asshole actually. But, right. we, but when you were young, we didn't notice. So all that stuff kind of stuck with me and just kept percolating until I started writing this book one day. And it, it just, was it intentional? Did you ever stop and go, maybe this is too personal or this is, maybe I don't want to like uncover this side of it, you know? Or, oh no, I no. love that. Like, yeah. I, when I, whenever I could figure out how to make it like more autobiographical or more touching on like, like I didn't want to reveal names of people in comics who, right. you know, used to throw hooker parties for editors so that they could continue to get work or <laughs> like the famous artist who really like stole tons of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko art from Marvel back in the 60s wow. and 70s who, you know, he had gambling problems and he had to come up with money and they were just giving the art away to like editors and yeah. stuff back then. So, um, but I didn't want to name any of those names and I wanted to talk about like that sleaziness that exists in, I mean, in all, in all professions that have artists in them, especially because when you're an artist or a writer, you want so hard to be employed, like we were just talking about, yeah. you want so hard to be employed doing what you do so you don't have to go get a straight job and wish that you could be doing what you wanted to do, that you'll bend over backwards and take terrible treatment and, you know, it's just, you know. Well, talk to me a little bit about the relationship between the fan and the creator too because the yeah. creator can be in a position where you could be miserable right you you know you can be an alcoholic you can be like i yeah. am shit but when you go to this place people are they don't they're not seeing any of that they're oh, just yeah. seeing your work and your work is eternal you know it's yeah. like, Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, that's the crazy thing is, like, whenever I go to one of those conventions, I have to spend at least, like, two days afterwards just having a complete identity crisis afterwards. <laughs> like, oh, my God, I maybe, am I not shit? What's going on? <laughs> like, yeah, maybe it pumps up your ego too much, right? Yeah, exactly. It can. Well, it is, it's just a weird thing, too. You meet people who, you know, it's always nice when you meet people who put a lot into your work, but sometimes you meet people, especially when I was doing books for, like, Marvel and DC, like you would meet people whose whole lives are about this book. Yeah. And like you meet someone and you're like, holy shit. Like I had no concept when I was writing this comic that there would be people who were like, thank God you got Selena Kyle right. Right, it's yeah. Like, You've changed the course of their life in a, in a yeah, good way. Exactly. It's like it's, it's the way that we all feel, I think, when we connect to TV, film, literature. It's like 
there is something that it's unforgettable. It just like it kind of stains our psyche in the best way. And that's what helps, you know, for me when I grew up, the things that I love, the things that like stick out to me, it's, I, I remember it as clear as day. And I mean, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, there's a scene in the book when he's, it's like one of the hardest scenes to write was the one where he's trying to tell you good things about the guy. Yeah. It feels like he's just spent the whole first day just telling you all his complaints about right. his ex-idol. And so he starts telling you about this great memory that he has. But in the middle of it, he has to sidetrack and talk about like discovering this guy's work as a kid and how much that meant to him. Because I was like a Navy brat. So right. we moved every two years. The only time we didn't move every two years was when there were military cutbacks and we got stuck in Gitmo for an extra year. So wow. I, in, I started school in Gitmo. And I would spend a lot of the time just in my room reading comics and drawing. And so I was like really trying to get out that side of what fandom is because I, I think also just like being an artist like being a fan is a really complex thing sometimes like what I, what I always thought was interesting about Comic-Con was how many people you meet who would kill to have your job even if you told them that they were going to get paid like a tenth of what you got paid and that anything they created would be turned into a movie and they would never get a dime for it. The line around the block of people who would sign up but for that's you. America. I mean, exactly, right? I mean, like you me. knew yeah. it too. Like, yeah, and it's exactly. like, but yet you go in because you, but it shifts once it happens to you. Right. Yeah. Everybody wants to get fucked until they get fucked. <laughs> um. <laughs> and then like in a way, like, you know, it's kind of taking advantage of the system, but it's also, you know, like here, you know, by signing the fake artwork and then, oh, yeah. you know, it's like, I don't yeah, know. He's, he, this guy has been so so sort of ripped off over the years, and he's done some of it to himself that it's just like he's got to work all the edges to just try to survive. And you see those guys. Like, yeah. When I first started making a living, uh, like my friends and I had been doing comics and going to comic conventions since we were little kids, and we would sit at these booths together, like me and Brian Bendis, who is like one of the biggest writers in comics yeah. and um, created like Jessica Jones and stuff. We would have like a booth together, me and him and a couple friends of ours when people first started caring about us. But we'd been there for 10 or 20 years before they cared. So we'd wander the halls when we were thinking, all right, we've got it made now. I'm writing Captain America. He's yeah. writing, you know, Daredevil, whatever. Spider, Ultimate Spider-Man. And, um, and then we'd wander through Artist Alley and we'd see all the guys that we grew up worshipping. And there was like the guy who created Ghost Rider who, you know, also that was disputed by the publisher. What sure. did he really create it? He'd, he had a, a booth in Artist Alley with a little sign telling you that he was the guy who created Daredevil or created uh, Ghost Rider. And he would charge you $5 for his autograph. And we were just like... That's the gross of Christmas future, man. <laughs> oh, I mean, 100%. I remember I would walk around that top floor at Comic-Con. You walk, you know, it's like, here's guys on Battlestar Galactica. Here oh, is. Yeah. I remember the two most unique people I saw in that area was the dog from Voyager. And they would dip his paw in ink. <laughs> and then you could get the dog's autograph, which I thought was really the interesting. The dog from Voyager. The dog from Voyager. And, um, and the uh, the guy who played the soup Nazi on Seinfeld and he signed ladles. Oh my god! So yeah. I was like, and 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 uh, I would say no. Such better treatment than all the comic book people. They That's do. Really yeah. funny. Uh, I remember when Bill Willingham was like mad at you because one of your yes. security guards like pushed him. <laughs> and by the way, my security guard like I was being escorted to something. I don't have. I don't have a security guard with me. Be cool. Uh, so, uh, but um, so you know, this has kind of been described as like an expanded revamp. Like, you know, this is obviously appeared uh, in Criminal first. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. But like this is kind version. of, uh, yeah, this is a little bit longer. Talk to me about that process. I always find, for me when I'm writing comic books, that I always try to 
let myself do a last dialogue pass after I see it yeah. all out because there's always things you want to change and tweak and I, and and you have to like eventually let go of it. But this is an amazing chance to kind of go back in and make it a standalone, but also kind of expand it too, right? Yeah, I well. There, I every time I write, especially if I'm writing like a sh- like a single issue or a two or three issue story, yeah. there's always stuff in my outline that I don't have room for. You always have to sacrifice something. You're like, well, this scene isn't as important. You don't learn as much about the character or you know the other. Like, there's always you have to choose the meat of the story right. basically because we can go as long as we want. Like all the issues that this was serialized in, I think the first one was like 30 pages and the next one was like 27 pages or right. something. So we always go longer than the average comic, but Sean can only draw so many pages in a month to get the book out on schedule. So I will, like I know I can never push him beyond, you know, a right. certain point just, you know, because he'll he'll just be mad. He'll still do it somehow. I don't, right. I don't understand. He drew like 14 pages in a week recently. and wow. I, I, You couldn't tell. It was insane. Um, well, what is that? Pro- what is that process like with you and him? Like when uh, you you know it's your writing is so specific. It's you know it, it, and you guys have this amazing partnership. How much freedom is there, or how do you work? I mean, obviously you love working together, yeah. you know. So oh yeah, how does that like? How does what does he see when he's getting the script from you? He gets uh, he gets it in like chunks at a time. Sometimes I'll send him, I mean, recently I sent him as little as little as three pages just because I had to keep him moving because right. we're always talking about deadlines. Um, but, I mean, he doesn't want to know what's coming. He, I give him, sometimes I'll tell him the gist of what, like when we were going to do the fade out, I said, it's a murder mystery. It takes place in 40s Hollywood. And he's like, all right, that sounds good. Yeah. I want to draw. I want to draw a period piece. And then he never wants to know what's coming. He just wants to get the script. So I'll send him usually six or eight pages, sometimes, you know, every now and then I'll get a whole script done before he starts drawing, and then he'll have, like, 24 or 28 pages to draw. When it comes back to you, though, are you surprised by anything, or is it the way that you envision it? Like, what's that? Um, it depends. I Sometimes I try to envision it too much. Like, on the page, I'm a little too over-directy, and then I have to remind myself, like, oh, yeah, we've been doing this a long time. Just right. tell him. These are the people in the room. Don't tell, you know, he'll figure Right, out he can stage standing. it a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. I don't see pencils from him almost ever. He, he does his penciling. Now he does it digitally, so it's a little bit tighter than it right. used to be. But his penciling is really loose, so he does most of his actual drawing in ink. And he letters all the stuff himself. So basically, like, you know, I'll send him a script, and within a couple of days, I'll start getting pages. Like today, I got a page from the next issue of Criminal, which you know the next one comes out like in a week, and I got a page from the one after that today that he just started drawing. And you know, now I'll probably be getting like a page every every day or two pages every day. And you know, and then I give him notes if something if something's weird or if I want to change some dialogue or something. With this, uh, when I finished the second issue, I. I called up my publisher, uh, Image, and I said, you know, I think this thing came out really good, like better than I thought it would, and I don't just want to put it in like a collection of short stories. What if we did like, you know, like just printed like 500 copies of like a hardback just to sell at Comic-Con or something? And he was like, oh, that would cost us so much money. We'd be losing money on that. And then I was like, all right, well, I guess not. And then he sat down and read the the second part of it because he hadn't read the second half yet. And then he called me up the next day, and he was like, you know what? Let's just release it as a hardback in general, not just like a limited edition thing. Like, let's just put it out as a hardback. And then he's like, I think, it's, I think it works really well. And I thought, well, fuck, if we're going to actually do it as a hardback in the same format as the Junkies book last year, 
then I have room to actually go back into my outline and see if there's anything that I didn't have room for before yeah. and just try to make Sean draw extra pages for this hardback while he's drawing other issues. Yeah. What did you, what so I added what? like all the scenes where he's, where they're at, where they're inside the convention. Oh yeah. Like I didn't have any of that stuff in the comic. Like I, that was the stuff I had to sacrifice was him actually sitting at a table and no, right. no one basically giving a shit, which is like, I mean, he's there to receive like a lifetime achievement award, and the and like the only person who wants his autograph is like some little kid who doesn't know who he is, and the and the and the catalog is like an Image Comics thing. Yeah, which I thought was the funniest joke ever. My publisher <laughs> didn't think it was quite as funny. <laughs> I was like, but that's how I felt in the '90s about you guys, and now you're my publisher. That's why it's funny. <laughs> um, so, talk to me. I know you said that there's. Um, talk to me about what is. What are you excited about coming up? Obviously, we you know you are in the middle of an arc right now yeah. in Criminal. Yeah, I'm doing the I'm doing the longest uh, story that we've ever done in Criminal. That's going to go all the way through issue twelve. Um, and if you guys have read the the series before, there's a character named Teague Lawless who, in the very first Criminal story, you find out that this is like a legendary guy who died a long time ago. And I'm finally telling the story of how he died in the summer of '88. Actually, how is it to do this longer arc? I mean, is it is it because like, it is your longest arc? Like, what yeah. what about this story made you want to continue? Um, well, I just. Y- it was too broad. Like most of the criminal stories are one person's story kind of, and all the other characters are part of it. And sometimes a background character will be the star of the next story or something. But with this one, so much of it was about the two generations, like the, the people who we've seen in the other books, like Leo or Tracy Lawless or uh, Jacob, who was, who's the star of Bad Weekend, the, the, ex, in, the ex-assistant. Yes. Like, you see him at age 16 or 17 in this, where he's, like, the dungeon master, you know, who's, like, the artist dungeon master yeah. guy before he goes off to be this guy's assistant. And, like, so much of it was about the, the kids and then their parents who are planning a heist, you know. So I realized, I was like, oh, there's too much story to try to do it like a normal criminal and then I started thinking about all these different characters and how they all had arcs, and I thought, oh, well, let's just make it really hard for myself and have each chapter be a completely different focal <laughs> character, and then everyone will have to try really hard when they're reading the book to follow all the different plot lines. <laughs> because a lot of stuff happens like between issues, so yeah. you have to be like, oh, wait, did they... Well, wait, they put a gang together, and now they're planning a heist. But this is great. That's what the internet is great for. They will figure it all out and put it yeah, in, a, exactly. in a nice, easy, uh, like, infograph, and you can see it all, like the uh, like the timeline and endgame. People have, like, yeah. connected <laughs> all the dots to it. I'm going to um, have to go find that because I have a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, you don't only just write uh, graphic novels. You also have... Uh, had some interesting experience working on, I think, two very unique shows. Uh, you worked on Westworld yeah. for a little bit. Yeah, I was on season one of that. And that seems to me, and we're going to segue into our second part here, but that, that Westworld seemed to me like an interesting thing because you really are a, a part of a, a team effort there, yeah. right? That that's, oh, yeah. that's That's an interesting thing, going from someone who has so much control into a writer's room where you are a voice in the room. Oh, yeah. You know, and you're not the showrunner. And I will say on day two, one of the two showrunners took me back to their office to tell me I was being too much of a voice in the room. Yeah. <laughs> well, but by the way, but no, but, but that... it was a totally valid thing. I was just not used to, like, I was just having more ideas than everyone else there. And I was being told, like, hey, let, like, just, just sit and, and listen, and just, like, let other people, 
you know, not everybody has written a thousand comic books right. like sitting in this room. But do you feel like that experience turned you off of doing that style of writing? Like, because your next choice, which we'll get into in a second, oh. like, is, is a little bit different. But like, did you, would you ever go back into a writer's room where you're not in charge? It would really depend on on the show and the multicam about a funny family and a cute dog. I'm in. I'm in. What's it called? It's called Peaches. Oh, no, I'm out. If it was called Dog Gaunt, no. Uh. <laughs> um, I mean, it would really depend on on the situation. Ideally, no. Like, yeah. Ideally, it's just too much time and effort to be put in. And like we were talking about, like the amount of writing and rewriting that goes in on a lot of stuff. When you come from comics where everything you write gets printed, yeah. like the way we do, I, I rarely start something that I don't end up having printed. Like the amount of wasted words and wasted time can just really start to wear you down. I'm not young anymore. If I was 20 years younger, I'd yeah. be like, yeah, sign me up. But now it would be like, oh, like David Chase wants someone to work for three months with him. Like, yeah. But it's three months only, for sure. Right. You well, know? yeah, if it's a limited thing, that makes sense. Yeah, that's like the kind of stuff I can, I can do now because, you know, it's, I want to do my own stuff and balancing the comics. Like, working on Westworld, I had to get up at like five every morning. Oof. And then I would write. Oh, right, to write own, your own yeah, stuff. Yeah, I would write my comics. So I was doing two comics at the same time as that. And then I would go to that office at nine. And often we wouldn't leave till nine or ten at night. And a lot of the day was just spent sitting in a room talking about the same ideas like, or lunch over and over right yeah, yeah, yeah. Lunch. <laughs> yeah we would we would we for the last six months i was there we never even left for lunch lunch was Oof. always delivered we worked through lunch and it was all just those charts and timelines and just circling the same ideas and it, it i mean i think the show came out really well those but the showrunners lisa and jonah had like a very clear vision for what they wanted the show to be and i felt our job was really just to sort of help them make sure their their ideas were right in a way and help steer them towards realizing how they, like an idea, like how could you actually make that happen as a scene? And eventually I just was doing a lot of like dialogue polishing and stuff. Yeah, I was, which is it. I was just channeling David Milch. I'm like, just get me, let me write robots. I can just, <laughs> can they say, the, robots that can say cocksucker. That's all I want. <laughs> um, you know? Before we bring out our special guest, I want to just ask because you did say, uh, you don't often write something that doesn't come out. Black sales. Uh, oh yeah, that was a contractual problem actually. That okay, was so more of a the publisher wouldn't let us have full ownership, and so, so it was going to be like a no. pirate series with you and Sean, right? And it yeah, it was a it was a period piece pirate store pirate vampire thing that was going to take place off the coast of uh, California about like a. It was it was going to star these pirates who were vampires, but they were the the reason that they were pirate vampires was they were the all the sailors on the ship who had brought Dracula oh, I to, love uh, from Transylvania to London, and so they'd all been killed on the ocean. So the ocean was their home soil that they had to sleep on every night. So do you think that they will ever come? I don't know, maybe. They, they, there was a scene where they were going to eat sea biscuit, which I was really happy. It took, <laughs> it took place during the Great Depression, and. Uh, so it was basically like Jaws, but with pirates and vampires. I love it. Um, <laughs> all right, so back on track. Uh, right. So now the um, so your next we project. did criminal instead of that. <laughs> so that worked well, look, out. Well, look, it worked out. Okay. It worked out okay. Although I still yeah. want to see vampires eating sea biscuit. Um, <laughs> so the uh, the next project that you worked on uh, in TV is this uh, amazing Amazon show that you partnered up with our special guest here tonight. Uh, and let's welcome him right now, Nicholas Wynn-Reffitt. 
So guys, welcome. Thank you for being here and, and chatting uh, with us. Um, so talk to me about working with Ed. Like, how do you bring Ed onto your staff? It's, it's more like, um, who do you want to spend time with? Right. You know, yeah. at the end of the day. And um, I, I had met it on, um, through some industry people. <laughs> Should we leave it at that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, uh, and so, um, um, and... Um, I like, I'm not, I'm from Denmark, so I didn't really grow up on like American, I mean, I lived, I grew up in New York, but I, I, I'm dyslexic, so I, I couldn't really read. I still really can't read or write. Uh, but I, so the images is what I could understand. So I don't, I'm not, I don't know a lot about comic books. Right. But um, I'd seen some of Ed's work and I, and I, and I very much like the, um, the energy in the storytelling. It's very yeah. specific. It's very specise. And so we, um, we, we, we worked on a project called Maniac Cop, which is this um, franchise from the 80s that Larry Cohn created that Ed and I and, uh, have been working on and continue to work on. But... Um, while I was here some years ago doing a movie, um, everyone said, you got to get into TV. Because this was a time when Netflix had kind of cracked the model in terms of how streaming was going to work. And, um, and so I'd done something similar when I started making films back in Copenhagen, which was like a, a trilogy where you kind of create a world and then you have different characters that go in and out of it a little bit like... Ed's work and the same kind of obsessions with, with, not with crime, but about people in a criminal environment, yeah. which is very different than crime itself. That's not, but the idea of people under pressure. Mm. And you can kind of say that if Shakespeare was alive today, he wouldn't write about the royal family, he would write about crime. Right. So I, I was in a car and I came up with this idea about, well, what about doing... Um, something about crime in LA and like this title of like too old to die young it's kind of like a riddle so when I kind of put that together and this idea of of telling these stories about these people and it was all about it be death and religion and so I called Ed because I wanted to do it with someone because it was going to be so big and I like working with other, I like collaborating with other people, even though it's all about me. But I like the creative process. <laughs> He's not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I, 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 I introduced it to Ed, and, and he seemed to really respond. And then we, we started working on it. And, and the idea was that this was something we were going to do together. You know, this was, we were going to be a team, and we weren't going to bring anyone else in. And I was going to direct the whole thing. This all seemed like something that was humanly possible <laughs> five years ago. <laughs> um, and then while we were, we wrote a lot of the material, but then I went to Paris to, 
to meet Alejandro Jodorowsky because every time I do something, I go and see him to have a tarot reading and he kind of, that guides me to the final conclusion. And, and Have you ever abandoned something after a tarot reading? No. Okay. It's like <laughs> All right, that's once, good. once Alejandro sets it in stone, that becomes the rule. Okay. So uh, he said there was a missing piece. Uh-huh. You know, he said everything has to have a mother and a father. And, you know, obviously we were missing the, uh, 50% of our component. And so when I came back, uh, we brought in Halle Gross, and then we became a trio. And I think, I would probably say that this is the best time Ed has ever had <laughs> working on anything. Um, um, well, yet. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, I mean, what, I, what I think I'm, I'm so kind of fascinated by is, I, I feel like your style is so visual, and it's really engrossing, and your your style is very verbal to yeah. me. And so that's an interesting mix of, of I, I, it's almost like, you know, uh, yeah. We both like, like the Pusher trilogy, like is some of my favorite movies. Like we both love characters who are in those worlds who are like put, put into strange places. And we both like have a lot of the same sort of movie touchstones that we love. And I'm a big fan of Nick's movies. So like for me, it was, you know, it was like I knew what targets I was aiming at a lot of the time. But, you know, also, like, he thinks he wants to be John Cassavetes all the time. So there's, like, 40-page dialogue scenes that he uses five lines of. So <laughs> you look at the dailies and you're like, huh, oh, well, I guess we didn't need all that. <laughs> but now, th- this must have been, and I've heard, you know, Nick, you talk about this series as... There are films. I mean, they're 90-minute they're episodes. They are, you know, at can you screen episode four and five, right? So, and I have read articles where you say you can jump in wherever you want. It's a sort of like a, a good book. You can, and I, I think in a way you guys rebroke the mold of streaming, you know, because it's, it's not what people are expecting. It's, it's doing something again. And I, I, was that conscious or is it just like, no, no, that's, or, or are you... I mean, because you broke the mold. Like, so did you know that you were doing it in the moment, or did that something that just evolved as you as you worked on the show together? Well, I, I have a, a deep hatred for authority, and it starts really back to my schooling. And so, you know, I don't watch television. You know, I think television is pretty uninteresting. I made him watch like Atlanta and stuff, and he loved it. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah. and again, this Peaches show might be the thing that pulls them over. <laughs> the the, the but, dog is very cute. But, I mean, I think what's great about Atlanta was just it's a really well, beautifully inventive kind of um, yeah. narrative. Yeah. And Atlanta feels like the right show for you to watch. Like, yeah, yeah, like it feels... It was like very tone, refreshing. Yeah. You know, and, like, what I do a lot is that I walk into places like this and I just browse through books and I read one or two pages and then I read the book I felt. Mm-hmm. And this is also how I watch films or listen to music, that the idea, and I look a lot at my kids, how they consume. And so for us, I think the idea was to say, even though you know, I sold it as a show to Amazon, and when they bought it, it was like, I don't really want to make that. Right. But then they gave the money, and then I didn't tell anything. <laughs> and so, so I thought, well, why don't we just do a long movie instead? You know? Right, yeah. 
So, and then it, with that, and because I shoot in chronologically order, it became like an odyssey more than anything else, where it wasn't about so much the narrative, because we knew the storyline, but it was what was this show actually going to be about. Because there's nothing more useless than just feeding, you know, you know, the idea that time is such a valuable thing for everyone, and it's taken away from us every day by shiny objects. Right. And those shiny objects should have a deeper experience than just being time-consuming. So I think we spent a lot of that time um, really, most of it was me or coming and, and from an outside and seeing what was happening into America. But of course, there was no conscious of like, we're going to do this because you're not supposed to do that. It just became this thing. And it ended up being 13 hours long. And then afterwards, we just chop it up to different pieces, like right. a book. And then I said, the beautiful thing about this is that creativity has no start, middle, and an end. And that's a, that's a, that's a narrative that was kind of very recently invented. But you don't go to a, a museum or, or you don't, you know, necessarily in that order. So why do we have to always right. abide by those rules? And because nowadays with technology and the telephone, streaming is like a force around us that we just go in and out of. So we should play by that rule and not by the idea of now here is the time or this is the time scheduled or this is the control or this is how it should be done because everyone always tells us what we should do. Right. Like correctly. And which is obviously, well, that's not what we're going to do. And, Ed, working with Nick on this show, is it an evolving process? Are you, as, as in the writer's room, this trio that you have, you know, how do you fit into that? We talked about how you fit into Deadwood. How do you fit in here? Oh, sorry, West, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, sorry. I wish Westwood. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it, it was, I mean, early on, it was, when it was just me and Nick, we would just Skype a few hours, like two or three times a week, and go over like ideas and outlines, and then I would write drafts, and we would go over stuff, and we would change stuff, and then I would write new drafts. Once we got closer to production, it became clear that like, because he always warned me, like, you write one thing, you shoot a different thing, and like the final thing is whatever yeah. comes out of the editing room, and it's usually totally different than what you started out trying to make. And I think the show, while there's Which is very different it, than comics. You know, which yeah, I, that's exactly. been the struggle that I've had with comics, which is like, you do it, you have to be writing, directing, acting, yeah, and editing. At at the, yeah, yeah, that's why I send Sean like three or five pages at a time sometimes, is because you have to isolate every moment. You have to get, yeah. make sure it's all, because once it's drawn, that's pretty much it. No one, yeah. I mean, you can occasionally get someone to redraw something. But, but like Nick... Nick works so much from his own gut instinct of what's interesting to him, sort of, that a lot of what the initial show was going to be about, I think by the time he was over here and, like, seeing this country, like, falling apart, a lot of the stuff was just didn't, it just kind of felt pointless to him, like, plot stuff or police procedural, like, any of this stuff just sort of felt like not what he wanted the show to be. And I, there were moments where I wasn't 100% sure he knew what he wanted the show to be, right. and we were filming it. 
and right. he would come into the to the writing room at, after being on set for like 10 hours and me and Hallie would be there and it'd be like 11 at night and we'd work until like 3 in the morning like tearing whole we had like a 85 page episode that we like tore 40 pages out of in one wow. night and rejiggered stuff and then wrote like some extra stuff to fill in and I think that that's like, a good uh, it's pretty hard I mean like as far as a writing as just writing goes like like at that point, you're really just working for the director, and you're trying to make sure that they have whatever they need. And like, it's grueling. It's hard work. A lot of times, you don't know if what you're writing is gonna is because the target is moving. Yeah. You know, because especially because he's shooting chronologically. So, I mean, it was definitely the hardest I've ever worked on anything in my whole life. I could understand as a writer the frustration of that, but as yeah. a creator, it seems to me really freeing because as you're watching what you're doing. You're getting a chance to change. It's it's like sculpting in a way, you know. And yeah. it's and and I think you know we live in this environment where it's like let's get it out the door. Let's it's done. It's done. Yeah. It's done. And to constantly evolve, I think you get to you get this unique thing. I, I remember was it? I think like Woody Allen would shoot a first draft of a movie and then go back six months later after he had done like the yeah, first. Yeah, was like a murder mystery originally. Yeah, I think. yeah. And I no, love that well, idea that you can kind of always, I always tell be. People, I think. The last scene we ever shot was the first scene of episode one, which you were shooting again, right? <laughs> or like one, there was something in episode one that was the final thing that was shot for the whole for the whole show, I think. Well, I because you were reshooting so much I, stuff. I kept on changing uh, because I kept on wanting to do to to figure out what it could become rather than what it was supposed to be. Yeah. So. Um, that meant that we also shot for 10 months every day, which is, you know, very, very hard on the mind. But from a creative point of view, it was like we had a giant canvas. And it was more like, this is now open season, and we have this, but we're going to go somewhere else. Right. But we have to see day per day how it evolves. Yeah. And so... You're both very militant about it because you have to be very strict. At the same time, it's all about inspiring everyone else to throw ideas into this blank canvas that continues to evolve like organically. So yeah. the end of the, of the movie, and it truly is a movie, like halfway through making it, uh, it was like, let's not do any more. Let's just <laughs> right. let's just finish it because it's gonna. We're never gonna be able to live up to what we did now. Right. And I certainly don't want to go back and do it again. Right. I'd rather jump out of a building. So let's 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 approach it like the grand finale. Yeah. And just do it a one-off. And because everything nowadays is so based on algorithms and nonsense. You know, it, it, it becomes a story enormously um, heartless. You know, yeah. there's no, there's no, um, you know, I don't know if any of you work in creativity, but the only success in creativity is polarization. And the more you polarize, the more success you have because that is the only true identity of an emotional reaction. If you, people either love it or hate it, they have something to talk about. And when people talk, it brings thought, and thought makes the world a better place. So creativity is the final frontier. It's a human you know, instinct. And it's the only 
element the AI can never do. You know, yeah. most of our professions will disappear in all areas, but creativity can be duplicated with all the annoying sequels, but it can never be generated because creativity is the soul and the soul can only have a point of view and a point of view creates polarization. And as long as we kept that mantra, and I'm very self-absorbed, I admit that, you know, and, but that was like, that was, that was what we were going for. It's interesting because you talk about the bookstore, you talk about the museum, and there is something, we're in a world where you're being force-fed. You know, you made a choice, you said something, and Instagram gives you an ad for that thing. And, you know, a bookstore like this, you walk in, you can touch any book. But, yeah. like, the way that we live our, our, our internet life, you would walk into this bookstore and there would be two books, you know, yeah. or one. And, and, and I think that one of the, the great shames, and I don't want you guys to have to badmouth the people that paid you, but was I feel like Amazon did not get out in front of this show the way they should because it is such a interesting, different show. And it's, and you know, it was, it's, I'm, I hope that more people continue to find this show. And that's, the benefit of streaming is that it always exists. It's not just on one week and then it's gone. But it's, I really do feel like you, you're not often rewarded for, breaking the mold or breaking the algorithm and stuff like that. But, but we are in a way that Amazon just left us alone. Right. See, all this publicity is all about vanity. It's all about your ego. It's all about the idea of look how successful this is. But success at the end of the day is valueless if you're not proud of it, like deep yeah. down, truly proud of it. And so for me, I mean, I loved working at Amazon and I very much like the Amazon studio people because they left us alone. It was the only thing I asked for. Right. And then I think for them, they had never experienced something like this. You're dealing with the most corporate entity in the world. So when they don't know, then nothing can truly kind of build from that because well, how, do, how would they even do what was considered the norm? So rather than doing, you know, the standard, I, it was like, let's go the complete opposite. Let's, let's make it like a, a secret. I love within that. Amazon. So at Amazon now, there's a secret. And that secret is the most anti-corporate yeah. <laughs> secret. <laughs> But it's within the company. Yeah. So we have planted a seed in the biggest corporation in the world. That is far more interesting. I love than the norm of what is success, and that's yeah, what's and interesting about Easy Ed. Oh. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it's like working with him. This is my signing. <laughs> <laughs> that's what was. That's what was the whole object. Of what is it? What is streaming? Yeah, it, it's a different thing. Well, and and the the fact that it's like not, you know, out there on the front page. Like, the show got more press than stu than Jack Ryan. I mean, Jack Ryan, like the sh people. Well, you guys about premiered a can. I mean, yeah, this is exactly. like this is like this is this is yeah. a show that. And what I love about streaming is 
you can find it at your own time. It's not going yeah. to go away. And oh, there's yeah, something no. really wonderful about that. It is like when you were, like we talk about going around in a bookstore, if you stumble across this thing, you're in for a treat. Yeah. And, and the less you know about it, I think the better off you are. Well, an actual word of mouth, you know, let's not forget. That was yeah. always how, I mean, I come from the days, of Nick too, where like we got zines that told us about like, cassette tapes that we yeah. have to send away for where guys were prank phone calling people. You yeah. know, it was like the internet wasn't a thing. And it's like word of mouth is really the thing. And so it's like... It's the, the best recommendation. I, the, there's people who are still writing reviews of the episodes like months after they've come out now because they're like, I'm, a, I'm addicted to the show. I'm going to like talk about it all the time. And it's, you know, it's worldwide. So it's everywhere. It's, you know... It's really interesting to see the you know the amount of comparisons to like the Twin Peaks, the Return, yeah, and, and some of the people who who watched it and gave up, and then uh, and then their friends who got all the way to the end are like, oh, you know what? After episode five, it's a completely different show. So all of your assumptions about the show for the first half are like potentially like you're being set up to be. So it's just interesting to see it grow as it as yeah. it exists now because you do think of that. You have your your release and your one you day of planted PR, this. Yeah, you and planted then that's this it. seed. And then it's like a big shrug. Like, all right, we did this thing, and we you know now it's out there. But this feels like it, like like Nick said, it's like a secret seed that like more and more and more people keep talking about it. I at Comic Con last week, I met a bunch of TV writers who were like obsessed with it and wanted to know how we got them to let us make it. Well, that's the big thing. I think what you talked about with creativity and you both have kind of created this path of doing your own original work that is left without, like, you know, when you're working, you know, with Image, they're not giving you notes like Marvel is going to give you notes. No, they're not allowed to. Right, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and, and with Amazon, that's the rare thing. I mean, I I have everything that I've ever written. on a comic book is, like, so cheap and this is, like... Sixty something million dollars. <laughs> hey, well, you know, to Amazon, that's nothing. That's like uh, not even. He can half walk a... in and get people to give him sixty million dollars. I can walk in and get him to give me fifty grand. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's open it up to you. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of different stuff. Any questions uh, that you all have? All right, so many hands up. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'll just repeat the question just in case anyone heard it. The question is, why did you decide to make Criminal Monthly? Was it a challenge for you to do it or? Well, it was, I mean, we've been doing mostly monthly comics for like the last, probably since we got to Image. I think we, you know, we were a little bit late here and there on Fatal, but mostly like Kill or Be Killed and the Fade Out, like usually those come out like every month. So I always want to have like a comic that we're putting out at least like 10 issues a year. I think we're doing 11 criminals this year. It was more just when I was working on the Junkies hardback last year. I had been having trouble cracking that story, and then I realized that she was the girl from Coward and that, that, and that it was all connected to Criminal, and then suddenly it was like, oh, okay, this is how it works. And while I was writing that, I just started thinking, oh, like I haven't done Criminal like in, in, in anything you know, of any length for a while since, you know, like... 2011 or something and it just occurred to me like I should do more of that and then suddenly I had like a flood of ideas and so I just thought okay I'd been struggling with the thing we were going to do next and um, so I just I just emailed Sean and I was like what if we just do criminal as a monthly for a while and see how that goes instead 
and it just felt like suddenly like I was just freed. Like I had tons of ideas. I had the ability to try to explore the format more, which I feel like no one's doing in comics. Like all comics now are just the shittiest paper, the least amount of pages per issue you could possibly trick people into buying. And it's all just aimed at the trade paperback. And so I was like, what if we did like a single issue for the first issue that's like 40 pages long and we don't collect it? And it's like you only can get it if you read that first issue of the, of the single issue. I just, I love that form of monthly comics because that was like my childhood going to the comic store, you know. Every You're both week. kind of breaking the form in your own ways. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. So it's trying to use that and sort of also, like, I, I want to reward like the readers and the retailers who support the thing by trying to like keep having like something out that is worth buying every month. So we're always like extra pages and like more, you know, the best paper. So stuff I care about that I feel like other people should care about, and I, I never can tell if they really do. <laughs> I think, <laughs> it, is, nice I think it does make a difference when you see something on a nice paper and, and, and thought put into it. Like, again, this is a, you know, a revamped version of it. It's just not, a it's not simply a collection. It is yeah. a, it is a, it's like a director's cut. Yeah, which is, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, another question. Yeah, I saw a hand in the back. Yeah, sir. For the comic or the TV show or what? Well, we can actually talk about this with both of you. So when you're coming across an idea, like, I mean, how do you know that that's the idea that you're going to eventually follow? I mean, that's, I think that's always a tricky thing. There's so many, there, you know, we always are thinking about things. What, what, what's, what pulls it over the edge besides a tarot card? For, for <laughs> me, it's always just gut instinct. Like when I start, I usually start with like a character or I have an idea that I want to write about a certain thing, but I'm not exactly sure how to get into it. And then I'll start figuring out like who the character is. And once I've got that figured out and, and figured out like how that character is really just some facet of me hidden kind of, then I just, it, it, in the old days I used to worry more about like, are people going to like this story or, you know, is this something that's commercial? And now I never worry about that at all. Now I just worry about like, is this something that is going to be worth my time to write? And that's going to keep me wanting to come back and make sure I get it right every day. And, you know, it's really just a gut instinct. I'll often think I'm about to write something and I sit down and I am like, this doesn't feel like I've, it's percolated long enough yet. And I'll put it aside and start writing something that just feels like it has to come out. You know, I, th I feel like you're same the same thing. exact uh, way, like, honestly. We're very similar, Ed and I. <laughs> <laughs> Is there, I mean, you know, you both are such interesting, unique authors, and we're living in a culture right now where it's always about, can you reboot, can you redo... And I think you both you you met on Maniac Cop, which is something that is created by somebody else. But what when you when you do when you do that, what's interesting about that? Like what you know, because that is a that's a tricky thing. You know, what are you are you what are you being called to? Like what makes you go like, oh, that's an idea that I want to explore more, even though it's not your own original idea. Well, I think for for me, um, you know, Larry Cohn was a really inventive writer first and foremost, and he had some really wacky ideas. I don't know if anyone saw like God Told Me To or some of those great Q, what was it, the one in New York? The I mean, Changeling. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he, he, was, he was a very inventive you know, personality. But I think for me, the reason why I bought Maniac Cop was 
I was very intrigued by this, what was going on in the U.S. in terms of how uh, law enforcement is perceived in the media and the public and how the subject of safety and the idea of, um, uh, of, of, of fear and how fear spreads throughout. It's a very dramatic starting point. And so we worked on it for a number of years and, and stuff like that. And uh, John Himes, the director, also you know, came on board and we all worked on it. But I always felt that there wasn't the right time to do it, even though we, you know, the material was ready to go. But now, because of what's happening in your country, and the idea that everything is versus, you know, men fight women, sexes fight each other, religion fight each other, race fights each other, everything is about combative, you know, and the idea of paranoia. And I thought now that more than ever, the yeah. concept of Maniac Cop, the way that we're gonna do it, which is, you know, very different from the William Lustig movie, um, you know, we're just more taking the title and the concept, is in a way, okay, now there's a reflection that's actually happening, right. and now is the time to actually get it made. All right, great, let's uh, go out, yeah, sir. I'm going to try to just, I, I won't repeat it exactly because I can't, but I can say a little bit of what you're saying, which is like, there is a lot of power in the silence of that first scene of the first episode. And that's what kind of brought you into it. And when you're writing and creating this, you know, are you, is that something that's happening on the page? Is that something that's happening in the moment? Because there is a tension. And I think there's a, a lot of tension to your films. I remember reading an article about how like Texas Chainsaw Massacre was like one of the first American movies and giving people that feeling, not that you want to create horror movies, but the feeling of, ooh, what did, and I think that that kind of walks that same line. I think all the films I've seen of yours, you don't, where, where is it going to go? And, and, and that's a hard thing, you know, how do you approach that? Is that in the writing or is that in the shooting? Well, it's more in the concept. Um, and I think for me, it, I mean, I don't know where it comes the idea, but I've always been very interested in silence. Because silence is the loudest sound you will ever hear. Because it's the one sound where everyone pays attention. 
And because we live in, you know, a lot of urban societies and everyone is moving to urban societies and technology, silence is very rare in our lives now. So when it comes, most people get very uncomfortable very quick. It can be social silence. It could be at a dinner round table where people suddenly stop talking and somebody will start talking again. It can be, uh, you can be in an open space. It can be from the television. The idea of silence is, is, is a very powerful tool in creativity. And it's this very simple tool. It doesn't, doesn't cost anything. So when you add silence, it's the anticipation. And creativity is a little bit like sex. It's all about the buildup. The climax itself, which is the result, is fairly, I came. <laughs> but it's the buildup that stays with you. And, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, like when you masturbate, you do it to the buildup. And so silence is the most powerful and simplest tool. It's also very naked, so it's a dangerous tool because if the, everything is not working, the silence will expose that it's not functioning. And so another ex interesting experience on making the show was you know, s speed is, you know, again, we live in a society where sp it's all about speed. And as much faster the better, which is ironic because, you know, when we're ch children, we're taught to, to engage. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.